HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Whole Foods Market. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We talk about food, we talk about music, with musical dudes, finger on the pulse, snacky tunes. Yeah. 
Welcome to Snacky Tunes. I'm one half your host, Greg Bresnitz. That was just Kid Wave with their single, Everything Changes, who will be playing live in studio later today. Uh, before we get started, we want to send a big thank you to the entire Snacky Tunes and Heritage community for helping us win the Evangelist Taste Award a couple weeks ago. We are pretty honored about it and uh, are just excited. So thanks, everyone. In studio today, we have Lin Yi. Hey, Greg. Who I only know as Lin Yi because I've known you for over a decade. It's true. In New York. Um, but you are here in your brand new incarnation as the founder of Mold. That's right. For those who are not initiated, what is Mold? Mold is an editorial platform about designing the future of food. Um, you can check it out online at thisismoldmold.com. We've been publishing for over three years and have published about 400 stories um, everything about packaging to eating insects to uh, agricultural systems like vertical farms. Um, we kind of cover really the whole gamut of uh, design and food. Where did you land or how did you land on coming, uh, joining design and food and how it's playing a role in the current food landscape? Well, um, I have been a design journalist for about seven years and I was traveling to all these different design festivals around the world, and I started seeing some really interesting projects, primarily from students that joined food and design. And at the time, it was kind of a strange thing to see at a furniture fair or at a design festival, because really most of the things that you would see there are like beautiful couches and lighting. What's a good example of something you saw that caught your eye? Um, one of the first pieces that saw, I saw that really made me think was a Swedish university whose students were really rethinking um, the idea of the refrigerator and food storage. So part of their uh, class was actually redesigning contemporary food storage. And they were using everything from like terracotta, which is a um, breathable earthenware vessel and rethinking the shape to store everything from root vegetables to produce. Um, they were kind of thinking about different structures for how that might fit into a contemporary kitchen. And it was really beautiful and elegant and really functional. And so that was like something that I really liked that I first saw. And at the time, really design, design websites weren't really covering that type of work. And then food websites, if they would cover it at all, would always be like, oh, look at this weird project. And they didn't really know how to write about it. So I felt Nothing like... Nothing says innovation like weird. Exactly. Right? <laughs> like, this is so strange. And so I felt like there was a real opportunity to talk about food and design in a critical way, in um, a way that showed the designer's process and the thinking behind it. So I launched Mold in 2013. And since then, we've written about a lot of different things, but... About a year and a half into it, I read this uh, article about this UN report that was about how the year by the year 2030, there's going to be over 9 billion people on this planet. And the reality is that if we keep eating the way that we do and producing food the way that we do, we won't actually be able to produce enough food to feed everybody. Um, currently, we actually produce enough food, but people go hungry because of lots of kind of political reasons. Um, but the idea of not actually being able to produce enough food for everyone on this planet is really terrifying and terrible. And designers, as um, people who think about the world um, in a way that offers kind of innovative solutions and that kind of takes into account a lot of different 
types of practices from the most human practice to scientific achievement to engineering solutions and kind of distills those ideas in a way that um, makes it accessible for people. I thought designers really need to have a voice in this conversation. One of the things that I saw on your site that I thought was great was the um, African uh, food dehydrator yeah. that took shelf life from, I think it was like two to three days to a year. Yes. I mean, it is the most, I mean, from any standards, it's not produced very well. It looks like it's shot on an iPhone. The the object itself looks like almost like a hollowed out tin thing, but it actually is a game changer for farmers uh, from farmers who can increase the shelf life and also the income of their their produce. Absolutely. And I think that the role that design would play in something like that is not only just kind of fine tuning the uh, functionality of something like that, but actually making it beautiful Mm -hmm. so that people like you and I or a farmer would actually want to have that in our homes or in our yards or wherever we're producing food because, you know, food waste is a huge problem. I think the United States wastes over a third of the food that we produce, which is crazy. Um, And so things like as simple as a solar dehydrator uh, really is a game changer for so many people. So how was the response to this, considering it's 2013? How long did it take for people to start to catch on and not call it weird or interesting, which is almost as bad as weird, but uh, accept it as more commonplace and begin to find this as a home for food and design? I think that people really started understanding what mold is about about a year ago. Um, I think that the general media was more interested in food technology and the way that um, technology can enable better ways of eating, um, more kind of advanced tools for preparation, food preparation. Um, but I think that the magazine is going to be a way for us to actually explain what food design is and what the power of it is through issue-specific themes. So right now when we talk about food design, there's so many things that that can cover. But with a print magazine, you can actually pick up something and read a whole issue that's dedicated to one facet mm-hmm. of what those possibilities could be. And why do you feel it's important for the media to talk about the future of food, not just because of this and, and your issues? Like, Why is it engaging besides all of the, the, the current issues? I mean, I think the future of the food is really wide open right now. I mean, the reality is that we're going to have to change the way that we eat. It's just impossible for us to continue on the trajectory that we're on right now. Um, You know, we can't keep eating the amount of meat that we eat. Um, We need to find alternative sources of protein. And I think that the kind of mainstream media is doing a huge disservice to its readership by not talking about it. Um, 2030 is only 13 years away. I know, it's not that far. And it's also framing things like insects from, like, gross to necessary. Yeah, and I think that, like, it's it's time for us to kind of move beyond the like insects are so weird or like other people eat insects <laughs> argument like we know that like so what do we do with that knowledge how do we transform that how do we engage people from chefs at Roberta's to the home cook to embrace the idea of insects whether it's through like a protein form or maybe it's through an insect burger like there's just it's just we don't have enough time we don't have time to just kind of dwell on the weird part and slowly adapt it yeah that's over yeah that time is over now it's time for us to embrace things and you know it's not and insects may not be the answer insects i think might be a way for people to talk about the urgency of the issue but maybe it's about algae maybe it's about seaweed um maybe it's just about other types of proteins like embracing legumes and beans um in a way that we haven't in the past i think that 
you know, people forget that the way that we eat now is only like 50 to 75 years old. Like we didn't have microwaves and frozen foods the way that we eat now, like, you know, 50 years. We didn't have cold storage for, yeah. for that long either. Yeah. I mean, industrial canning, like snacks, like snack food industry, all that didn't exist until like, you know, 50 years ago. So there's an opportunity for us to look beyond 50 years and think about all the different ways that we ate in the past and like find inspiration and take it from something that's kind of twee and like maker e to something that's mainstream and embraced by everybody. Yeah, one of the other things that was featured on Mold was the floating farm yeah. with solar power that essentially was able to desalinize the water and be self-sustainable and was a grid, acre grid farm. And that to me just, and that was pulled from Native Americans. Yes. And inspired by the way that they grew filled, uh, coastal food farms. Absolutely. And I think that that actually talks about the role that artists have to play in this conversation because mm. that was actually an art project. And um, I think that one of the things that we're seeing is that artists, because they are allowed the space to kind of use their imaginations to think about the way that things could be, um, have a lot more space to play. And so they can create these like floating farms that float down the East River and provide produce and uh, that would be equivalent for an acre. It's kind of amazing. We're going to take a quick musical break and then we're going to talk about the Kickstarter campaign for the magazine and why you're launching a magazine in 2017. We have a track from the Snacky Tunes archives from one of our favorite, Laura Stevenson. The song is called Barnacles here on Snacky Tunes. I am utterly yours 
Welcome back. You are currently in the midst of a Kickstarter campaign to start a magazine. Why a magazine? That's a great question. Um, well, as you know, uh, I come from a print magazine world. I've always loved magazines. When I was younger, um, getting a magazine was kind of like a, a gift like from the gods. I was so excited about it. Um, and I've worked in magazines my entire, entire career. Um, and I just... I feel like there's something incredible about the medium um, to be able to sit down by yourself with, um, you know, a, a piece of paper that is going to give you a window into a different world, I think has always been something really magical to me. And I think that print really offers a, an opportunity to kind of distill um, some kind of complicated ideas into a single issue that you can kind of sit with and think about and you know print design is something that has always excited me and so the two designers I'm working with um, Eric Hu and Matt Sang they're super talented um, they are very fluent in both digital and print and so I think that the way that they're able to kind of translate this idea of the f future of food and design into a print piece that um, you can kind of engage with in a, from multiple angles is really exciting for me. Let's talk about distilling it down into a one-theme issue. Sure. Uh, you're starting with the micro-gut yes. as a focus, which has been obviously in the news for last year, both taking pills to possibly fix, sickne to fix sickness, but also what lives down there. Sure. How did you land on that, and where's the intersection of that and design? Great question. So the first issue is about designing for the human microbiome, and it's kind of a buzzy word right now. So for those people who may not be familiar with it, the microbiome is basically all of the bacteria and yeast and viruses, the microbes that live around us and inside of us. Um, uh, there's, a, been a, there's an amazing book that everyone should read by the science writer named Ed Young, and it's called I Contain Multitudes. It's an incredible, fascinating Read And the reason why the microbiome is so interesting right now is because for once we actually have the scientific, scientific knowledge and technical tools to actually understand what the microbiome looks like. And um, one of the things that he writes is that we are actually more other microbes than we are human cells. And that's by number. So we actually contain more other things. Um, and one of the, the, the way that I kind of wanted to talk about it was actually through a pretty um, interesting and emerging uh, design discipline called synthetic biology. And the idea is that now we have the power to actually design biology and design microbes. And so what does that mean for us? Um, and that was kind of the starting point for it. The other thing is that um, just kind of by doing the research, I, ra I realized that we actually... Uh, the, our gut health determines so much more than just digestion. It actually determines mental health in a lot of ways. Um, our, I think our guts produce 90% of the serotonin in our bodies. So it, it, it kind of like there's like a direct connection between our gut and our brains. Um, our immunity is determined by our gut microbes. And so it really, you know, it, our gut, our microbial uh, uh, Ecology in our guts changes every day, every second, depending on what we eat, um, how we eat it, what time it is. And so it's, it just seems like a really interesting opportunity for designers to consider when we think about the future of food, 
how can we design the things that we eat to be more nutritious? Um, probiotics are a really interesting thing. Um, up until now, I think probiotics are kind of like an unclear science, but now we actually have the opportunity to figure out what's in our guts. And there's um, startups that are actually uh, asking for stool samples, and they'll tell you what your gut microbes are composed of. And if you feel sick, you could actually repackage that and take it as pills. <laughs> exactly. Which is no longer weird, but it's, or, a, but it's interesting. Yeah. It's getting closer. Yeah, there's actually a really interesting Silicon Valley startup right now that is kind of starting to hedge into this space. And it's from, a, I, think, I think it's a Blue Apron alum. Um, but what they're doing... Which is really funny. Yeah. <laughs> so they're trying to create packaged meals based on your gut ecology. And it's like a new thing. They're, they haven't officially launched yet. Um, they have like a website up. But this kind of weird future of um, kind of like data collection around our bodies um, is not so far away. It's actually quite close. And I think that design really has a huge role to thinking about how this might um, be used for good. Like, Have you adapted your diet since you've been diving into this research? That's a really good question. Actually, I'm just, I've gotten really into like pickling and sourdough. Um, I've always made kombucha. I've made kombucha for over a decade. I kind of go in and out of doing it. But since starting uh, the research for the first issue, which began in uh, August of this past year, I just got really into thinking about how I'm eating, what I'm eating. Um, I eat sauerkraut probably every day now, and I made it myself. It's like the easiest thing to make. I think everyone should do it Like when you get home today. And why sourdough and sauerkraut and pickling? Why have you gone towards that? Yeah, um, sauerkraut and sourdough specifically because I love the idea that I cohabitate my kitchen with all these microbes. And when I make sourdough and sauerkraut, they are basically going to work for me. And it's like my microbes. They like come from my kitchen. And then I kind of eat them. And it's this kind of weird meta thing. But for whatever reason, it really gets me excited. I actually made sourdough yesterday. And it was the best sourdough I've made so far. Um, but I'm into it. I like the idea. It's kind of like a pet. Um, sauerkraut, same thing. It's just salt and cabbage. And that's it. And then like the microbes that you have in your kitchen and it just naturally does its magic and you don't have to do anything. The Kickstarter campaign is running till when? Um, it's running till the first week of April. Okay. And it's going well. Yeah, it's going really well. I feel this it's, we just launched on Tuesday and I just feel so humbled by the outpouring of support, not only from my friends like you and the people who have actually supported the campaign, but also from people I don't know. And I'm like, who are these people? These are amazing. Um, I think that the idea of having a print magazine that addresses the future of food is very timely right now. And it's kind of a challenge to, you know, contemporary, like to mainstream food media. It's like, hey guys, sure, you can talk about like whatever food trend is hot right now, but like, what are you doing to talk about the future of food? How do we dovetail food trends that are hot right now into food trends that are going to help us feed 9 billion people in 13 years? Like, I think that there's space for that and I'm hoping that it'll be a spark for a conversation I want to make sure we get to one more thing before you go 
Lone Star Empire. Yes. Your barbecue. Yes. Your barbecue <laughs> joint. How did that start? It started 2010 and it's still going. Yeah, we're still going strong. So before I was a design journalist, um, I did event production and marketing with Greg. And um, so I, <laughs> I, I moved into an apartment in Bed-Stuy in 2008. And the first thing I did at the time was I bought a smoker. Um, I was kind of... I don't know. I was I was unimpressed by the summer barbecue scene in Brooklyn. I come from Texas. I grew up eating barbecue. Um, so I was like, fine, if uh, I can't get good barbecue in New York, I'll make it myself. And so I started smoking brisket for my friends and my neighbors. And uh, a friend of mine who is um, my partner in Lone Star Empire was like, oh, we should do this for real. And he worked at a restaurant. And so we the next spring we started kind of prototyping, I guess, different types of briskets, um, brisket rubs and, you know, wet rub, dry rub, smoke times, all the different things. And then we launched at Brooklyn Flea and Smorgasburg. Actually, we launched at Trophy Bar first, which has been like the home classic, classic yeah. kind of incubator uh, incubator program. That backyard. Totally. That launched a thousand food Absolutely. Stands. Absolutely. And so from Trophy Bar, we uh, went to Brooklyn Flea and we're at Smorgasburg and also in the summer at Summer Stage in Central Parks. So. Amazing. Never stop. Yeah. So we do brisket barbecue, like Texas style brisket sandwiches. We make our own barbecue sauce. We make our own pickles. It's delicious. Sourdough buns this summer? Oh, no. I think potato bun is like the, the right vehicle for, for sopping up all that delicious The microbes juice. are angry. <laughs> uh, well, where can people find uh, Mold? Where can they contribute to the Kickstarter? How can they follow along? Um, you can see Mold at thisismold.com. Our Kickstarter link is bit.ly, so it's B-I-T dot L-Y backslash Mold in all caps, M-O-L-D, capital M-A-G, Mold Mag. Great. Well, thanks for being on. Thanks, Greg. I'm this ex- is great. I'm excited to see the uh, Kickstarter pass. And what's the what are you going for? What's the number? Uh, Thirty four. You're gonna get it. Thanks. You're fine. Uh, we're gonna play a track from the archives, uh, the Downtown Club, and then we have Kid Wave live in studio, who is en route to South by Southwest here on Snacky Tunes.
Today's program is proudly brought to you by Whole Foods Market, America's healthiest grocery store with more than 400 locations throughout the United States. Download the Whole Foods Market app on your smartphone for recipes, sales, information, and digital coupons. Or visit WholeFoodsMarket.com to find a store closest to you. Welcome back. Kid Wave Live in studio. Hello. Thanks for coming by on your way down to Austin. Oh, thank you. Uh, first time down to South by? Yes. Are you excited? I'm very excited, yeah. We're going to get to that in, the, in a moment, but we're going to start from the beginning. 2011, yeah. you leave Sweden, go to the United Kingdom. Yeah. Why, why did you leave Sweden? What was the music scene there? And what did you see or hope to find in the UK? Yeah, so I moved mainly because I, I guess I was, you know, I was 19 and I wanted to get out from, from quite a small town. So I figured London would be the place to go. And so I, yeah, took my suitcase and went. Um, yeah, I thought that the scene in London was a little bit more vibrant where I was from in Sweden, there was literally no music scene. So that was actually the reason why I went in the first place, just to have a scene. Um, Where were you getting your influences from? At the time. At the time, when you were still home. Um, mainly from my friends' bands, actually. A lot of people think when they hear the first record, they think that it's from a lot of 90s bands mm. and whatnot. But the reason why it sounds like that is because I was very influenced by my friends' bands mm-hmm. who were all quite influenced by those bands but at the time I had no idea what those bands were um, so yeah, I was back then I was mainly just going to see my friends play I listened to their records um, so yeah, weirdly enough it was just in, within a quite small circuit of friends What did you find when you got to London? Did you find what the inspiration looking for besides your friends' bands or was it not exactly um, what you had hoped for? It was what I had hoped for. It was a lot more difficult than I'd thought. So in, in what way? It was just a challenge to move to London when you're that young and have you know, had no money whatsoever. So I found that it was, you know, causing a lot of anxiety and stress. So I guess the, the lyrical content is a lot about, like, the whole anxiety, whereas the music was kind of already there when I moved. I knew what kind of music I wanted to make. Um, so it was not a case of me going to London and, you know, exploring the music scene and taking it all in and t- transforming my music into something similar. I think the songs and the music were, co- like... That I already had a vision when I went, but yeah, the lyrical content definitely inspired it. <laughs> Was the were the lyrics uh, there before you moved, or were they adapted when you got there? It's, they, it's interesting. Yeah, no, they were all um, like when I write, I came, I normally just come up with a or like musical idea, like an instrumental, and then I um, come up with a vocal melody, and then the, the lyrics go on top of that. But I so yeah, I think the lyrics were all kind of like in the time being um, came from, yeah, from there. And what led you to your first EP or when did you feel that you were ready to release Gloom? So Gloom came out once I had... um, So I wrote a couple of songs and I put out a single called All I Want on a Bandcamp page um, online and that generated a lot of interest um, that I wasn't expecting at all. So I was like, oh, I keep, I keep writing, keep putting things that out. Works. That works, yeah. Um, so I did that, and I wrote a couple of songs, and Gloom was one of them. And there was a label um, in London called Heavenly Recordings that I, I had just heard of them, and they had these amazing band on their roster, and they were basically the first label that I sent my songs to. And 
Yeah, I was very lucky. Just that easy. Yeah, it sounds like a dream. You just send it but to the first one, they say, it w- sure. <laughs> it sounds like a dream, and it was a very old school way of, um, you know, things to happen. But yeah, it happened, and they picked up on it. And I didn't have a manager or anything at the time. Looking back, a manager would always have gone, let's explore our options. If one label is interested, there might be other labels. But Heavenly turned out to be a great label, and they were very supportive and put, ended up putting out my first EP and my first record. Can we hear a song? Yeah. What are you going to play for us first? We're going to play a song of that first record called Honey. Live on Snacky Tunes. You mentioned your LP came out 2015, mm-hmm. Wanderlust. 
How would living in London influence that as opposed to the songs that kind of came pre-written from Sweden? Um, I think the songs develop with my songwriting. So considering the first couple of songs um, I wrote when I was 19, I'd just moved to London, um, I had more time to write the album. Um, well, everything happened kind of quickly, but I moved to London, um, put out two songs online, I got the record deal, and a lot of the songs that I had put out as demos online they wanted on the record as well so it was a case of going in and re-recording it and um yeah i guess the newest like the songs that were added last to the record were i think better than what is, it in, the, is it in the sequencing like as you get later in the record i think so <laughs> i think so i mean i think that my writing gets better and better and i, I think any songwriter would say the same thing because you it's all like you know you add life experiences to it and your writing gets better it's like any craft you do it and the, the more you do it the better you get at it as you know as you can say whatever you want but I think that's the case and as you grew and you put your band together you found a band member from Sweden from mm-hmm. Australia from yeah. Britain did you like try to make it uh, as multinational as possible or is that just how it no, happened no that was just how it happened I went to a, like I studied sound engineering for six months in London and at that school I met Sarah the drummer who was um, from Australia and um, the guitarist at the time um, he's also Swedish and he was an, like an old friend from of mine in back from Sweden and he's a great guitarist and I had him play on the demos and a lot of the recordings because he's just amazing and um, then I really wanted him to be in the band as well and he came, kind of came over and did a few shows with us um, and then things got really serious we got a record deal and you know got a booking agent and started going around and he just had to you know make that call whether to move to London or not and he did so <laughs> now I've left London and Matthias is still in London <laughs> so yeah let's talk about it you decided to move to LA so what mm-hmm. did you hope to find in LA that you no longer found in London I guess it was just the same thing the same reason why I moved to London the same reason why I moved to LA I think the music scene out there is better at the moment it's a bit cheaper to live still London got crazy expensive kinda it's getting there it's getting there that's the thing though I I went out last year to in in the spring and it was way cheaper back then than it is now (laughs) but um, yeah the scene is really good out there at the moment I think there's a lot of bands you get as a musician and artist you get more you have more space you can easily get rehearsal space or studio time whereas in London everything's very cramped it's harder it's more difficult i feel like in la everyone has a studio in their Mm -hmm. house exactly people seem more chill about it as well you know and you've been finding some local writers to work on songs with who you've been working with i'm i don't i haven't worked on with writers mainly like musicians Mm -hmm. like jackson who's here in the studio with me right now he's (laughs) a local la musician um plays in a really good band as well called snowball too worth checking out uh, <laughs> just did like a bit of promo there. Uh, so yeah, no. It, basically, I went out to LA. I met a lot of musicians via my friends out there who are all also musicians, and um, yeah, and I just found some people to play with and go on tour with. And did you see your lyrics adapting? Like when you went out to London uh, mm-hmm. to the surrounding of LA, and if so, how? Um, I think they're more personal. They're more direct now compared to the first record. I think that's more of a a natural development of my writing though I'm not sure the move to LA necessarily inspired it I think it's more of 
being having more confidence and being able to put yourself out there a little bit more, which also comes with age, I guess. I mean, I'm not 90. I mean, I'm 24, so I'm not, it's not like I'm getting old or anything. But it's been five years, so of course that makes a huge difference uh, in terms of what's happened to you in your life and stuff. But yeah, not sure LA... Apart from, of course, if you move to a place like LA, you're going to come across some, you know, pretty messed up things. <laughs> so there's been a lot to write about um, just because I put myself in those situations where I moved from any, one any big city th- to any another. Any example you care to share? Um, I don't know. I feel like it's just in general when, like, London and Europe is quite different to LA. So I found a big clash and kind of... I wouldn't say morals is the wrong thing, but I find that the um, the way people live and are out there is very different. And it's not necessarily right or wrong. It's just different. And I don't know, it's just been in, like... There's been so many, like, weird parties. I went to, like, a wake, like, <laughs> somebody's wake, and that was, like, a big party, like, a house party. <laughs> Stuff like that is just, like, fucked up, um... So, I don't know, it's just been a lot to take in, I think, in terms of it's being very different from where I'm from. Can we hear another song? Mm-hmm. What are you going to play for us? We're going to play another song of the first record called Wanderlust.
currently on tour mm-hmm. with the shins yeah how did that come about that came about as my somebody i think it might have been in like my manager or somebody in that team actually sent james mercer my new demos and yeah he kind of just just got, like just yeah like just label. like i know <laughs> it sounds crazy um and yeah he really liked it apparently and offered me to come and tour with him. And here you are. So where and you have a couple shows at uh, a show at Baby's Alright too this week. Yeah, I'm playing my first ever headline show at Baby's Alright tomorrow. Which is the best venue. They've I've been, heard. I'm super excited. I've Billy never been. and the team have been on the show before. It's wonderful. Yeah. It's become the well after all the venues in Brooklyn shut down, it's become the de facto. Yeah. And not by default. It's, it's gr- it was already great and now it's just the only one left. I think coming from like outside of New York, Baby's Alright is the venue everyone's heard about like in terms of smaller venues and smaller bands and stuff so. and and it's just great and when you get on stage with the lights behind it's awesome. awesome and then where are the shows with the shins the show on tuesday is going to be at the bowery and the one on wednesday is at music hall of williamsburg and then you are on your way to south by southwest and then literally coming off stage at music hall and going straight to the airport pretty much no we're flying out really early in the morning so as someone's first south by in 2017 what are your thoughts on it and what are you hoping to get out of it i i mean i keep hearing the thing is everyone keeps telling me it's amazing and then everyone keeps telling me it's not as good as it used to be and then nothing is (laughs) well then everyone was like everyone's gonna tell you that it's not as good as it used to be but it's still very good (laughs) so i'm just super excited and i know for a fact that it's going to be very hectic because we're doing multiple showcases on like each day so gonna go out there and probably just be running around like crazy but then we have a day off as well on a saturday where we're just gonna no on the sunday i think well a fun fact is that lin yi and i first met at south by when i was still in college yeah when she was working at fader and she turned me away from the party (laughs) she didn't do like a full body turn she did the you're not on the list and then kind of the like quarter inch oh turn where you're not on the line side and then six months later I was her intern at Fader because I was like well that's not going to fly with me <laughs> so <laughs> that's what you got to do right Just yeah that's, like... that's what it's got to do we want to make sure we have time for one more song mm-hmm. thanks for joining um, no, thanks for having me yeah outside the tour anything coming up other LP yeah future writing plans there is an EP coming out okay to um, bridge over to the second album so there is I mean this might be the first announcement of it but yeah there's an EP coming out and um, the song that we're going to play now is the first single of the EP it's called Everything Changes and then there's more singles coming and then yeah the EP drops I think sometime in the summer or early summer same label? no new label new label who's the new or, label? Um, actually Secret okay Yeah. not the name of the label just actually a secret yeah <laughs> 
Uh, so where can people find you, catch you on tour, they, um, get all the information? They can find me on all social channels at Kidway Music. So Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, you name it, I'm everywhere. And um, they can, yeah, we're touring now with the Shins and doing South By and then I'm doing two shows in LA got a headline show in LA coming up as well at the Echo on the 15th of April and then keep probably keep touring just keep I going think, yeah keep going and writing music yeah exactly well then you thank you make sure to go to uh, bit.ly backslash all caps mold capital M mag uh, to contribute to the Kickstarter uh, appreciate everyone coming by today and we will be back next week with another episode of Snacky Tunes take us out Every night
Listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.